This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, I am here with Kuro and we are going to talk DAX today, digital to analog converters, because Kuro was the one that did that pretty amazing research into the ones that we've been using, found ones that we probably shouldn't be using anymore, and was able to identify some good ones. So thank you very much for joining me today. How are you doing? Thanks for inviting me. I'm doing good. Uh, beautiful day out today, so happy to talk DAX with you and hopefully uh, enlighten a few more people. You know, we've come a long way over the past couple of years, but yeah. Yeah. And for anybody listening on audio only services, Kuro's got a CRT VGA monitor with Windows 98 running in back, uh, some Kanto Oro magnetically shielded speakers, a nine inch BVM with a monoscope pattern. I see another BVM next to that with some Roland speakers. So, yeah, if there was ever one picture that could describe one of us, it would be this right here. <laughs> yep. Yep. All my, and there's more over there, but that's all out of frame. So, nice. So um, DAX, right? Let's break this down, the very basics, and then we're going to kind of get into a little more of the nerdy side of things. But uh, I want to start with the basics just because I want people to understand what what this is that they're looking at. So the basics of a digital to analog converter is it takes a digital HDMI or DVI signal and converts it down to VGA, um, RGBS, or component video. And a straight DAC should do this with zero latency added because it's not buffering the image. It's just doing a direct conversion, right? Yeah, yeah, that's essentially it. Um, we're just trying to go from a digital format to an analog format, just like a you know audio DAC would. Um, you know, digital signal processing, and you know, I think the the variability, which we'll probably get into, and you know, the quality of those decks and the types of those decks. Uh, uh, they differ pretty widely. Yeah. And I guess we'll start with it from a safety point of view. I've personally never run into a DAC that I ever had to worry about too much voltage or, or really worry about hurting my equipment. I, I've used some terrible ones, but it's not one that would ever cause harm. Same same with you. You've never seen one that puts out two volts by accident or something <laughs> like that. No, I've tested well over 50, 50 of these now, and I've never seen one that was way out of spec like <laughs> over a millivolt even like it, it's or, uh, a thousand millivolts i should say um yeah it's never been anything that crazy 
Yeah, the only safety issue is the very standard whenever you're connecting a D-sub VGA style something to a SCART device, you have to use something like the HD15 to SCART in order to attenuate sync voltage. But that is that is a general rule that could apply to basically any time you have something that looks like a VGA connector that you're going to SCART. That is not just with DAX, that's just with any device that you see like that. So... Uh, other than that, I haven't run into any safety issues, but what I, I have always kind of found fascinating is sometimes you jump on Amazon and you might buy a, a $50 one or a $75 one, and that price doesn't mean a thing. The $8 <coughs> one might be better, might be worse. It doesn't, uh, there, there's really no rhyme or reason for the, the chipsets that are used. So I guess since you know, since we know that you don't have to worry about buying a cheap DAC and exploding your console or anything like that, or your monitor, what do uh, what are the most common things you've seen that harm the image quality when using cheap or or just not well built DACs? Yeah, so you know the the biggest issue that I've seen is you know the wide range of voltages across you know a hundred IRE, um, so. You know, if you're starting at zero IRE, which would be your pure black, and going all the way up to 100 IRE, which would be pure white, um, the biggest issue tends to be that variability within that range. You know, it could go a bit over, um, could be a bit under, like where it should be. Um, you know, I think it's pretty well known now that a certain set of decks based on the AG6200 ICs were known for crushing blacks basically because as it got down in the lower IRE patterns, the voltages just tanked. They just dropped really quick. Um, they might have had good voltages near the top, um, but you know, as it got closer to pure black, you would essentially start crushing and losing all the shadow detail um, in your image. So that, that's probably the biggest. For a second, about what exactly crushing blacks are for people that don't. For people that have heard the term but might not know exactly what to look for when you when you see that, yeah, um, I, I think the best way to describe it would be to like think of a picture with shadows, and you have very you know dark grayscale within those shadows. Maybe like the cobblestones on a street. I, I took a screenshot of Final Fantasy VII that really showed this well, where you know you want to be able to make out those cobblestones, but as a deck would be processing that digital. Uh, signal and converting it to an analog signal. If it is, say, taking um, those video levels between, say, 0 and 20 IRE, where it, all of that detail would be, and it's essentially just crushing those those voltages down to, say, you know, 5 millivolts at, say, 20 to 30 IRE, now all of that, that, all that grayscale detail has just been condensed. So you lose a lot of that detail at potentially even losing it all based on, you know, what that image is. Um, so you go from a nice kind of dark gray looking image to just pure black and you can't see anything. So it not only might dim the image, but you're actually just losing detail on the screen. You're just losing part of the image itself. Yeah. And, and you might not even notice it, like, unless you're really familiar with the game that you're playing on, um, you might not notice these things because, you know, in motion, and um, you know, when you're in a game, you might not notice it. But there's a lot of things that are hidden in dark areas. There's a lot of things that you know are put into the artwork in dark areas, or um, 
shady areas and you know you lose the creative intent of the developers and artists in those games so you really don't want that to happen um even though you might not see it you definitely are losing something right and you know this is of course all relative as well so if you're running these into a calibrated bvm you're going to notice a difference but if you're running one of these through like a mr and a mike s composite video adapter and you're going composite to a cheap crt then you you probably are still going to notice it but it might not affect the image as much because just everything the qual overall quality itself may have dropped but i've actually seen some cases where when you run it through lower quality signals it's almost more noticeable because because it's crappier you know what i mean um have you seen anything any kind of similar results or anything so you know taking a step back the, the whole reason why we have calibration tools is that mm -hmm. when you play a game on one monitor um, and then go to play it on another monitor or TV, whatever it may be, you want to have the same experience. So when you have a device that's hooked up to one of these DACs that's improperly converting those analog signals and either crushing blacks or um, getting rid of your highlights, if you're playing, say, a game on a Super Nintendo on your TV and it looks great, and then you go you know, to your other monitor with a mister and a DAC and try to play that same game, you're going to notice like something's off. You know, Your game looks a lot darker, for instance. Um, you're missing all those details. So I think the variability between you know, one or two TVs that you might have um, in your house, that would be like the first way you would notice these issues. Mm. Um, I guess when it comes to like lower quality consumer sets, there, there tends to be a lot of, I'd, I'd say, like issues around the actual quality of those consumer sets. Like, how well can they be calibrated? How right. well, you know, are there black levels? You know, there's only so much tuning you can do on a consumer CRT versus a PVM, for example. And I think that's what you're getting at is like maybe a consumer TV just, you know, doesn't have the capability to get that calibration as good as you want. I've definitely seen, I've, I've calibrated dozens of monitors. <laughs> I've definitely seen where you know the colors just do all kinds of crazy things at the lower IRE levels. So it's it's definitely a possibility. Yeah. And on the other side of the spectrum, the the too bright, I've gone into quite a lot of detail in a few videos recently about this. I probably should have dug into the too dim thing as well, but uh, <clears throat> essentially you could get brightness that is safe to use. You're not sending crazy amounts of voltage, but just like when you're crushing blacks, if it gets too bright, you start to lose detail and you start to lose some of the higher end of that. And that is also something that's fairly noticeable on, on you know, any display that has some decent calibration to it. Yeah. Um, so are, are there really, is there more discussion in that? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As far as what we're looking for in DAX, is it really the, you know, do they crush blacks 
and are the voltages at full 100%, either 100 color bars or just all white screen, are they at the 714-ish that they should be? Are there other factors that need to be looked at when you're testing these things? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, there's, I think, three three major factors to look at. One is the overall levels. How, how close does it match to your reference levels? And for RGB video signals, it would be, one IRE equals seven millivolts. And that's all the way from zero to a hundred. Um, composite NTSC is different. It goes to 714 millivolts, but just strictly speaking, RGB would be 700 millivolts. Um, so, you know, just how close does it track to those reference numbers? That's the first thing. The other thing would be your variability in the actual red, green, and blue signals. So I'd say good quality DACs, you know, have the same values across both rg and b across mm -hmm. the 100 ire range so not only is it hitting it at like a grouped level but at an individual channel level um hitting those reference values and then the last thing that i kind of grade things on in my <laughs> um, sheet would be overall like product variability and this is something that you definitely see in cheaper decks where um, I've gotten, I've bought like four or five, the exact same deck and they could be all different. Like they could vary in their RGB values. They could vary in, you know, consistency across, uh, the zero to 100 range compared to reference. So th there's a trade-off in going for a cheap deck. And I think that's, you know, a lot more variability versus ex an expensive deck where you get a lot more consistency. And I think that comes down to the actual quality of the, uh, DAC ICs that are used in these devices. Yeah, so I think this is uh, a good time to just pause and talk about that for a moment because I've talked about this elsewhere, but if this is the first time you're hearing about this, it might be interesting for people to know <clears throat> that when you have a lot of these cheaper commodity items that come out of these big factories, some of the reasons that they're so cheap is the components that are used, the manufacturing <clears throat> process, and they're often rebranded. So that's why you might often go on Amazon or AliExpress and see three identical looking things that have different brand names on them. Maybe there's a generic case that those manufacturers are using and there's different guts. Maybe there's actually only one manufacturer making those and they're being rebranded by three different companies. And each one of those might have been a different run of production. Every run of production could use slightly different components. So even if they're all using 1% tolerant resistors, maybe one batch uses higher quality than others and they're not actually 1%, they're only rated at. So maybe you're getting 5%, which means... For every 100 millivolts, you could actually be at 95 or 105. So you could have a pretty large variance in that stuff. All of that kind of adds up. So the consistency of manufacturing is definitely where you're going to, you're going to see major differences in any commodity cheap device like a cheap DAC or HDMI splitters and switches and all of these things that we get. Um, and that's kind of why I always push the whole price factor in something. If you buy something for eight bucks, you have to realize that there's a reason that some of them are 50 or 200 and some of them are $8. Yeah, <laughs> the cost yeah. is cut in places like, you know, doing the quality assurance checks, putting these things, taking one out of every 100 and running them through the test that you want to go through. And whether they include audio DACs as well, whether the audio DAC is, is embarrassingly bad or just good enough because... I've seen $10 devices that have, or maybe even $20 devices that have audio DACs that are fine. 
they're not going to impress anybody, but I've also seen the exact same cost of a DAC or an HDMI device where that audio output is embarrassingly bad for for no reason. The cost shouldn't have been any different. They just built it badly or used the wrong chip. And that's the very last thing is certain chips themselves aren't really built to the same standards as others. So you can get one chip that always performs the same and you can get another chip that you could you could fire up 50 of them and you could replace them in the same exact board and each one might be a kind of a 5% tolerance situation. So there, there's a lot of factors when you're going to cheap commodity items like that. Uh, and that's yeah. definitely, no matter what you're talking about, you need to keep all of that stuff in mind. But also, I am a very strong believer in price. Is uh, Price does push a lot of these things, right? If I, if I needed to solve a problem today, and it's an $8 solution, and I could throw that device in my toolbox for whatever I need it in the future, I will absolutely do that and hold, uh, you know, hold off until the more expensive, better one comes out. I have no problem with that, as long as people understand and are educated Hey, these are cheap commodity items. Maybe yours is going to suck. If so, return it. You know, maybe it's going to be just fine. And then understand that it's just fine. It's not the best solution, but it's a solution for the moment. So. Yeah, and that's the whole reason I added the kind of like ratings chart or ratings information mm. to my chart so that people could go in and find, you know, what's at least a good quality deck. Like I have, you know, a five star rating and like a three star is still good. And I think. A three-star would be something that you probably wouldn't even be able to, I mean, maybe a trained eye, but most people probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a three-star and a five-star. And mm. a lot of the cheap, you know, decks that are three-star, like, you know, $10. Um, but I also want to add, like, the, the variability of the manufacturer. We just saw recently the Mo Reed deck based on AG6200. It just recently changed to a new IC. Um, mm. I think the CS5 two one zero something like that um and it's a lot better now so you know one of the things you know if you're going out finding a cheap deck i used to say never stay away from those mori decks because they're based on the ag 6200s but now potentially you, you could get a good one um there is some variance there in the ones i've tested but i, I think when it comes down to it if you have an oscilloscope you can test it yourself <laughs> return the bad one keep the good one kind of deal um, but if you don't have an oscilloscope and you want good quality results, spend the extra money and get a good quality deck. <laughs> That's the best thing you yeah. can do. And, you know, I always try to put that into perspective, too. You can get those cheap $35 oscilloscopes that, you know, I would never tell you to design a product with that. But if you just want to test your deck to see, sure, even if it's a little bit off, you should be able to see right away what's performing well. And, you know, depending on your budget and your use case, buying a couple of $10 DACs and a $35 <laughs> you know mini scope like that might actually be better than spending 250 on one if you plan on using them for multiple things so everybody's setup is different and that's that's certainly something to keep in mind for that stuff yeah i mean i've got a i i use a hd fury x4 that's my main deck and the mm -hmm. reason i use it is multiple things one it's a very good deck it's very consistent two i like the fact and that the audio I, deck and that is also very good as well yeah it's great components mm -hmm. with it and you pay for that so but I also spent like $500 on a mister. So spending a little more on a deck is worth it to me. Um, that said, it's got uh, HDMI pass through. So you could send your direct video through that as well as, you know, just a standard HDMI signal without having to mess with all your cables. Um, and then, like you said, you could also use it as an audio deck, pass an HDMI signal and it'll extract audio for you. 
So yeah. you know, finding the right deck based on your you know media workflow uh, is definitely something you need to consider. Yeah, and that's why I still I still I guess you could say promote some of the solutions that aren't that great because if you take total cost into into mind with stuff like that i always try to make it clear that when i recommend these they're not the best but total cost so let's say you want to get like let's say you get the retro castle digital only case uh, it's about to be released on the aliexpress store ryan's got pre-orders open and six months from now you're like you know i got a crt let me start using it well what's a good way to go about doing that well, at the moment, you could take some of the decks on your sheet, like the Benfi one, the one that I've been using for a while, and bring it home, throw it on a scope, double check that it's still good. It's, you know, the batch I got was good, but who knows what you're going to get. But that doesn't do audio. So then you're going to have to take the, the spit if output of that case and get yourself a good audio deck or put it directly into a set of speakers that has digital input. But if not, then you probably want to get something somewhat decent. So, you know, yeah. depending on, uh, on your budget, you could get a $200 uh, shit Modi. And that's actually the, the name of the company, S-C-H-I-I-T. <laughs> and those are great. I love those. You can get cheaper ones. But, you know, that's a lot for somebody, right? Buy a, buy either an HD Fury 4 and get everything good for 200 and something dollars or get yourself a $10 uh, video deck and then test it yourself and then go and spend anywhere from 50 to 200 bucks on an audio deck. So a lot of people might just be like, hey, I just want to hook up a component video CRT that I got. I don't even know if it works. That's why those solutions with the Ranky adapter, with the built-in audio that's fine, no one's ever going to say that's great, but it's fine. You could pick up one of those and just solve your problem today. And then eventually, if you're like, you know what? I love this. This is awesome. But I am seeing the black levels drop out. I am seeing the video wash out. Throw that thing in your in your toolbox. You're going to use it again at some point if you're messing with CRTs. And then go and decide where you want to spend your money. Maybe you get the, the Retro Castle case with the, the DAC built in. That's awesome. Maybe you go and get an HD Fury. Maybe the community built one that's been slowly worked on over the past year or so. Maybe that's going to come out and be the one to get. But at least there's a solution for now and there isn't a safety issue. But I do want to make sure through stuff like this and just even in the weekly podcast, people know that those aren't the, you know, this is the holy grail of DAX. Like, no, it's just we're solving a problem and we're being honest about it. It's nothing wrong. It's not like those uh, composite to HDMI converters that add like seven frames of lag. Yeah. <laughs> those don't use at all, ever, period. Unless, you know, you're just... Unless you're not actually gaming, unless you're just displaying or something. But I mean, I think yeah, I, I, mm -hmm. the one thing I want to say is like over the past couple of years, when I started, when I first found this issue, and I know others found it too, but like when I first documented it and started putting it out there, I, I'd say the whole community has changed over the past two years. You start to see manufacturers of these boards take notice and be like, okay, now I got to be held accountable to the quality of the product I'm making. I've worked yeah. with Ivory at Retro Castle, testing some of his boards, helping to make sure, you know, his are meeting the quality standards, you know, we all should expect from a board manufacturer. Um, and I've talked with many other, you know, board makers as well. And the, the most positive thing is I think every board that I hear that's coming out now is going through and doing these tests, making sure things look right, making sure things are at reference levels. Yeah. And for people that are just getting into the hobby now, like the new boards that are going to be coming out this year, they should all be good. Like there should not be a bad board. If there is a bad board, then 
that person should not be making boards at this point. Everybody knows better at this point. So, you know, you, you can buy a cheap deck for now to hold you over maybe till one of these new boards comes out. But, you know, I, I'm definitely going to upgrade to Ivory's new board as soon as um, he gets one out to me. So mm-hmm. I, I like his methodology of creating a, a direct video um, board that's going to support the two RAM modules, but also that he's going to have a modular deck on it. So maybe in the future he's going to switch to a different deck or you want to use a different one. It's going to be modular, which is super cool. Yeah, I didn't even talk about that in the video because I didn't want to confuse people. But the, that's, you know, that's definitely something I'm excited for, too. And But, I mean, you also just kind of touched upon something that I've been dealing with since I started Retro RGB well over 10 years ago now. And some people ask why I used to recommend one solution. And now I don't anymore. And that could be applied to, to anything, not just DAX. And the truth is, a lot of times, when especially when I started the website, things just didn't exist. And people whipped together a solution that was fine, and that was the solution then. But as we're all learning together and growing together, people don't have to do all of this research from scratch by themselves. We're all just kind of building off of each other. So now we learn all of that, and the next revision of the product has to reflect what we're learning. And well, I I don't like to be negative. The unfortunate truth is there are a lot of people out there that don't grow with us. They did that one thing that they did 12 years ago, and they still just do it slightly different, but not really. Whereas there's other people that pay attention and they see what we're doing and they start changing the way they make their products to keep up with all of the new knowledge. And a lot of times cost has nothing to do with it. Sometimes it does, but sometimes you can make the same product for the same money and have it just be infinitely better just by the knowledge that you've learned in the way we do these things. So that's kind of why you may have seen me say about any product, by the way, like if you watch one of my first videos, it's, oh yeah, I love this. And now it's, I never even talk about it anymore because that person or company, and there's, there's quite a few just didn't, didn't keep up and they're all the rest of us are. So we all, we all learn along the way. We all make mistakes along yeah. the way. Um, but as long as we learn and improve, that's, that's all we can do. Yeah. That's why I really, I, I'm pickier who I work with these days. Cause I will drop anything to help people that just, that are one of us. They want to learn. They want to do better. I mean, Ivory from Retro Castle is the perfect example. I've never once caught an attitude from him when I asked a question, even when I made wrong measurements once or twice. He, he wasn't like, screw you, my product's perfect. It's, oh, really? Okay, well, how'd you test? Let me see if I could reproduce it. And then five minutes later, I go, stop, stop, stop. My fault. I screwed up. Like, I like it when people have that attitude of, I want my product to be as good as it possibly can. And I'll listen to anybody. And if the people I listen to turn out to be wrong. I just won't listen to them anymore, but you know, I'll listen. Yeah. And that, so I, I really love working with people like that. And that's who I'll, I'll just drop anything to go do my best to help. Cause that's how we've gotten so much better products over the course of 10 plus years. It's just people doing yeah. this with each other. I mean, the community is awesome. You know, the people that I talk to who, who taught me a lot of things, you know, I'm grateful for. And you know, I, that's why I do this as well. It's to support others. Um, I just want to see everybody have the best experiences possible because this is what we love doing. Yeah. So I guess let's dig into a little bit of the the actual testing process because we do have a lot of our fellow nerds listening. So I showed the whole how to test um, the high end of things, the, the you know the voltage spikes, and that's I would say that's fairly easy. All you need is a scope that's fairly accurate the cheap one whatever that's fine too and you just need the 240p test suite and that's it 
That's that's basically all you need. Well, um, but uh, how I'll exa- caveat something there real quick. So all my tests use the 240p SNES test suite as well. Um, but there is an issue with the SNES core, and it's true to all SNESs, is there is an S gamma curve basically in that. Um, so I just want to bring that up real quick now so people know. But if you have an SNES and you're reading the voltage levels using the you know IRE pattern, you're going to see that below 50 millivolts, you're actually going to have slightly darker or slightly less milli- or voltage. And then above 50, it's going to be a little bit higher. It's like a small little S curve. So in my testing, I've built in some you know, variability to make sure, you know, we can account for that and you don't have to be a hundred percent reference. So when you're looking at those voltages with an SNES, either true SNES or the SNES core on the Mr. Which is really cool, by the way, that it follows that gamma curve too. Like, I think that's just simply amazing. It's a testament. The of accuracy of the Mr. Devs in the course is, is really amazing. Yeah, definitely. But just so people know, like if you're using the SNES, it's not a true reference pattern generator. Um, you'd want something like, you know, an Extron BTG 400 or some of the other pattern generators out there, like a PS3 with some of the calibration discs are really good too. The Wii is a good one as well. Um, but just caveat that SNES core is not the best reference tool. <laughs> yeah. But, it, um, but <clears throat> let's step through the basics cause we kind of skipped ahead just there. So getting the, the high voltage, all you need is an all white screen. 240p test suite has it. I use the HD Retrovision test suite, not because it's better, but because with 100% color bars, you could see the difference, um, the different uh, waveforms of each of them on the scope. So you could just look at it and know which one's red, green, or blue. Mm-hmm. Plus, it's just better than having a, a line straight across for all the stuff for for the visual examples. But um, so, but how exactly do you recommend people step through getting? Uh, the rest of it so you fire up the ire pattern and you look at the steps on the scope and measure where each one are yeah so honestly it's a really simple thing to do i think um just gotta have the right tools but yeah so you go through each of the ire levels you know starting at 0 10 20 30 40 50 all the way up to 100 and you measure you know from the bottom line up to the top line like usually in the middle of the top line um and so you start at zero millivolts and then go up to wherever the middle of the top line is on the pattern. And that's your measurement. So if you're at, or if you have a hundred IRE, 20% window on the screen, you should see like a little graph that looks like a little, you know, square or rectangle popping up. And when you measure that top bar, it should be 700 millivolts if you're using an RGB source. Um, and then, you know, again, based on that, algorithm of one IRE equals seven millivolts, you can go down from there. Um, So that's how you would technically measure it. Now, we also talked about having both, you know, the red, green, and blue measurements too. So depending on your scope, you could either have all three channels in there at once and you could see what they look like, or you're going to have to do each one individually. So that just depends on your equipment. Um, I usually do all three at once just so I can see the nice little colors up there, see their separation, and then measure the difference between them. And I, I try to put those results in my uh, report as well. So I think that's definitely something I'm going to have to start doing when I, I go through these tests, just to show people visual examples, um, both, you know, examples of, of the, um, the washed out and the black level crushing and on the scope itself. So people could see the steps move up and see the, the difference between them like that. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's, 
fairly simple to do these things. <laughs> it's not a lot of work. Um, the, the work is getting all these decks and finding the time to test so many of them. But if you've got one yourself, you know, I, I, this is this is actually probably a very easy way to start learning how to use an oscilloscope. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what about eyeballing it? So if you have um, if you have a console that's way too bright, eight hundred millivolts, eight fifty, like some of the some of the Mister IO boards I've seen over the years, if you plug that into something that doesn't auto calibrate, so the OSSC, let's just say, or I guess maybe even the RetroTINK two X, but if you plug it into that and you take a screenshot, you'll definitely see that at the very least the last two steps on the colors will kind of just become one color. And I show that example in, I uh, forgot which video, might have been the SNES video, might have been the um, the Mr. Dak video, but I show it where I try to mess with it in Photoshop or something mm -hmm. to make it more extreme, but you don't need to do that. You could just take your screenshot, make it full screen, and you'd be able to see. Can you kind of eyeball it on the low end and see that you don't see the steps on the bottom, or is that not as easy to spot as the higher end? Yeah, so eyeballing calibrations, you know, you know, I think people do it. It's I don't necessarily say it's a bad thing. I, I do it sometimes on my consumer CRT, the ones I don't really worry too much about. Um, but like you said, it, it's making sure that that grayscale, you know, is consistent from zero to a hundred, and you're not losing bars on either side. So if you're eyeballing this, you can either look at a grayscale pattern to look at it and see, you know is this roughly right? Like if you don't have a scope, if you don't have, you know, a coloring meter uh, to be able to measure the actual brightness, um, you're just trying to do something quick right away to see how well it's working. There are patterns out there that have been made for, you know, media broadcasting that are designed to help people eyeball um, a calibration, help them make sure that it's generally right. And you can use the, the SMPTE pattern. It's got special bars at the bottom gray, like beyond black, um, to help you kind of identify, is this tuned good enough, we'll say. Um, so what, even within the 240p test suite, there's a bunch of patterns that you can use to help you do this. And it's just a matter of learning what those patterns are, what to look for in those patterns. But it, it's definitely impossible to get you like, you know, 75% of the way there. Yeah, and just to, to clarify, I would never recommend eyeballing for safety issues. So like if you have a super gun <clears> with a, a voltage dial on it, no, don't don't eyeball it. Make sure that you, unless you're an absolute expert, use that scope. Make sure that you're not going to blow up whatever SCART equipment you have or whatever else. So, so that That is not what I'm talking about. I just mean like you bought a DAC, you bought that $8 DAC, you plugged it in, you fire up the 240p test suite. I think a decent way to eyeball that would be to fire up a software emulator on your PC and uh, just screenshot a couple of tests. And then you would need a capture card for this, but even without a scope, you could make it, you know, run it through your computer, make it full screen, and then just compare and contrast. And it's obviously not going to be as good as a pure digital emulated sample. But if you're missing five steps on the bottom, then, and you know, it's crushing the blacks. So it's, it's you know, you're not there you're not trying to get precision measurements. You're just basically able to say, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm seeing dark missing or I'm seeing things washed out and the image is too bright. At least you could verify eyeballing it that way. But I definitely yeah. not saying calibrate everything in or and certainly not for safety, just from a basic, like, let me do a sanity check and fire up a test pattern. Like the, the, I did, I remember 
back in the day when DVDs came out, there's the Disney Wild Disc. You remember that one? Had some of yep. the calibration tools in there, the little blue filter. Um, like those are good tools to get you a, a good image, right? Um, you know, if you've got a DVD player, you got a PS3 or something like that, you can buy a disc. There's open source discs that can help you get there. So you could start there, I'd say. The, the one thing that you have to be mindful of is if you're using the Mister with a DAC that you bought online and you're calibrating your monitor with that, if that DAC was, you know, bad and you just calibrated your monitor with that bad DAC, now that monitor is tuned improperly. You hook up a Wii or a Super Nintendo to that now, and now that's going to be off. Um, you know, you could potentially, like you said, you know, there is a chance you could damage it if you're cranking up the brightness too high. Um, things like that's definitely not good on a TV. So, you know, that's to be something to be mindful of. Don't don't calibrate with a brand new DAC. I would say use a source you know that you trust. Um, or or calibrate with a brand new DAC that you've already tested. So yeah, if you've tested the DAC, go for it. Uh, if you've yeah. hooked it up to an oscilloscope and you verified it works or something like that. Um, great use that but if you're just buying one off of amazon you know I'd, I'd be cautious about trying to calibrate with that right away so this is a perfect segue into the other thing i wanted to discuss with you in that um how crts and analog displays of any kind are far more tolerant for stuff like this at a cost <clears throat> so the example i used in the one of the other videos i did it was basically when you go into arcade machines um Arcade machines are always designed to be tweaked for the board that's in them. Even though that's not the quote-unquote right way to do this, that's just the way it is. From the dawn of arcade machines to now, the arcade boards are wild and all over the place. I've seen three CPS-3s be you know, output completely different voltages on the JAMA to the point where I, you know, you wonder how that's even possible. So arcade operators are are basically the ones that are always used to eyeballing it. And you fire up the test pattern that's in that arcade board and kind of tweak it. And mm -hmm. that's not something outside of the arcade world. Um, that's not something I would recommend a lot because of what you were just saying with consumer TV calibration. But I, I would like to talk just for fun about why CRTs and analog displays are a little more tolerant, but also what happens if you just turn the brightness up to compensate for something that's too dark, that type of thing. So I guess we'll start with the why are they more tolerant than a digital display? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not an expert, I would say, but I, I'm thinking one of the biggest factors is when you have a, a digital display, there is a hard cutoff usually on what it can display and what it can't display. Um, with analog signals and analog devices, you know, there's a bit more wiggle room in that sense. Um, you know, you look back and we had, you know, brighter than white, you know, things with component video where you're supposed to hit, what is it, 225, but it could go up to 255, brighter, you know, whiter than white, they called it, I think. Um, so there's like some, flexibility we would say in what a display could actually do and while you know if you look, read through the service manuals for tvs they have the exact specifications exact nits you should be hitting um, all of those things if you crank up the brightness another 20 nits or 40 nits it shouldn't affect your overall picture image um, it'll just make it brighter you're not going to lose data you're not going to um, lose highlights for example and, you know, one of the reasons they had this 
um, was in a broadcast center, they're very dark environments. You know, you don't need a lot of nits in a dark environment to get a good picture. A lot of our BVMs and PVMs would run maybe at 80 nits uh, or 100 nits. But if you took a PVM out into the field, you know, you'd want 120 or 140 nits. And that's why when you actually look at the ways in which you calibrate a monitor, you calibrate it not in the kind of like on-screen display uh, settings. You actually go into service menus, adjust brightnesses and contrasts, gains and biases in there. And then once that's all done, you can actually use the buttons on the monitor to increase brightness or increase contrast based on your viewing environment. So there, there was a lot more wiggle room um, you know, built into them just because of that nature of you didn't know where or how you'd be watching that video. I think that's a great, I think that's a great way to describe it. Uh, the way I like to visualize it, which I'm probably going to describe it terribly, but uh, when you, something goes digital, that's the moment it hits digital, it's a snapshot of that total package in that moment. So for every frame that's drawn on a digital display or a capture card or whatever else, if something is too bright or too dim, it is captured like that. So it's like if you have a your shutter on your camera too, you know, too open or too closed, and then you just take that picture and you put it up on your screen, it is digitized that way. Whereas when you're going through a CRT, it, it's it doesn't lock it into that. The components are more tolerant, so that the signal passing through is more tolerant. Now that I'm saying that, that sounds really dumb. I probably shouldn't even it makes so much sense in my head when I visualize that, but I didn't didn't explain well, that very well. You're talking about the clipping of a digital signal, right? Like when you're clipping or the crushed blacks, same same yeah. thing, you know? So yeah, it's, it's mm -hmm. when when you go to that analog to digital conversion, you know, if the device is designed to only take up to a certain amount and you send a signal like say Dreamcast, which is what, 800 and some odd millivolts normally, you, you could potentially clip that. And, you know, in talking, I'll bring up the TIG 4K here, in talking to Mike Chi about this, the reason why he has his auto gain and the way in which it works is to take, you know, that into consideration when going from, you know, an analog source to a digital source, you don't want to lose those highlights. So it makes sense in that case with the Dreamcast that you'd want to make sure you have built into that system enough tolerance to be able to accept higher voltages from other devices and be able to kind of compress that down without losing data back into a normal video signal. So yeah, there's you ways just find to it way better. <laughs> use it properly. You just have to know what you're doing. So basically then... Uh, um, the much better way that you explained it was that the the chips for these cheap devices and for TVs that are designed for digital signals, digital signals are always going to be through a set variance. And analog uh, analog devices might have how had a wider tolerance, so that just like with Mike and the Tink 4K, it's not going to just clip and cut off once it passes 714 because the device is designed to accept. A higher voltage knowing that video games are going to be all over the place as opposed to tv signals which should be more tolerant so before it's actually converted to digital or during the process it has a, a higher shelf and you know a, a more a wider range than other digital devices because it's designed to handle stuff like that well he's actually taking that signal and condensing it for lack of a better word and then using the auto game capability to expand it to the proper um, voltage. So 
Yeah. That's kind of how his is working. And I questioned him on it. I was like, why is, why is the gain so low by default? And it's like, well, because there's some devices that are just very high and you have to yeah. take that in, into consideration. It's funny. I can't use the Tink 4K for a lot of testing like that because it's so good. Just like the HD retrovision cables, I refused and, and have always refused to use them for testing like this because the circuit that Steve built into that corrects a lot of the issues that you see from these consoles. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just, it's impossible to use them to test devices because it might fix some of the stuff you see on the way out. So basic RGB cables and the OSSC or direct into a, a data path card is how I still do so much testing because it doesn't fix the image because <laughs> you're able to get a, a, a you know a blueprint of that yeah as the, the snes cables i got a switch for that as well i think for you know correcting the over brightness of one of the snes types or models yeah um now one of the things that i had said in one of those videos um that you and i had discussed that i wanted to talk more about here is from a safety point of view if your image is too dim, just turn your brightness up on your CRT and it's fine from a safety point of view. But when you do that, uh, it changes the whole spectrum of color and brightness. So if you turn up the brightness to compensate for that, you're still going to get image changes that don't line up. You want to talk a little bit more about that or, you know, or if it's too bright and you turn the, the brightness down, even if your CRT could totally handle it and you're not going to get the same type of clipping that you would on a digital, it's still not nearly as good as if the signal was about proper in the first place. So would you want to talk a little bit about that? So I think first you have to understand how the TV, you know, displays that grayscale image and how it is first calibrated to make sure you have a perfect linear um, gamma curve or flat gamma curve, I should say, not linear, flat gamma curve. That's that's the goal is you want as flat of a gamma curve as possible in your calibration um, for at least, you know, a standard CRT, which is 100 nits. HDTVs, it's totally different because, <laughs> you know, all that HDR stuff. But um, anyway, CRTs. Um, so when you calibrate a... Um, you know, a PBM, let's say, you have to go in and tweak contrast and brightness and dial them in so that you have, you know, proper levels across that entire range, but you're usually just tweaking them at like 20 IRE and 80 IRE or 100 IRE um, and dialing them in so that it's as flat as possible. Now, if you have a device that's sending a very low, you know, voltage in the like sub 30 IRE range and you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to crank up my brightness. Some, well, what does that do to your contrast calibration on the other end? Right. You just spent that time trying to get a nice gamma curve or gamma line. And now you've messed with it, trying to uh, accommodate a device that's introducing errors into your image. So that that's the problem that can occur with these, decks that are not you know following reference levels as people will be like oh this one looks dark so i'm just gonna turn up my brightness but what does that do to the rest of the image at the higher end it could be too bright it could be washing things out potentially um you'll be screwing up your calibration for other devices that you plug in later so that that's the issue yeah so from the from the context of you have a knob that says brightness or you just fire up your osd with your remote and you turn the brightness up and back down um from the context of being able to just easily turn it right back down, you're not screwing up the calibration from all your other consoles because you'll just hopefully know that to turn the brightness back the way it was. But what you said makes sense in that even if you turn up the brightness to compensate for something that's too low, 
the, turning up that brightness might wash out the higher end because you're compensating for the other side of that. So yep. from a safety point of view, uh, especially on a CRT, that's totally fine. And even if you're using the, the Tink 4K, because I, I always say about 600 is as low as I'd go. It's really 650, but I just, I have seen original consoles from the factory with no mods hit like 605, 610. And maybe it's age, maybe it's dying capacitors or something, but I've definitely seen that. And I just don't want to freak people out and have them put their Atari Jaguar on a scope and be like, oh, it's broken. I need to fix it right away. It might, well, you might have just gotten a bum one. So. That's, it's not necessarily a bum console. I'd say. I mean, it's definitely possible, but. I think it is more the the variation of the actual consoles themselves. Like we were just saying, a Dreamcast native output is above eight hundred millivolts, but and that's not every motherboard revision. Not yeah. So, but you I can't mean, absolutely find it that way. Every Dreamcast I've seen and heard of is above eight hundred. <laughs> we'll just say that. Really? But yeah, um, with now. RGB, like uh, yeah. you know, with a VGA connector, not not composite. Um, but you know, an SNES would be. I think it's below seven hundred. And it, and it can vary between product runs with the same console. But I think the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, the, those consoles were made and designed around whatever that flaw might be, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would say just because the Dreamcast is high, SNES is low, whatever the other consoles are, you know, they were designed for that. And the games kind of, I think, took that into account in their artwork and other things most likely, um, not always the case, but most likely. So I let all my consoles do what they do, right? And then when it comes to something like Mr. and its output, um, like we were just saying, the SNES score has that ischemic curve. It's following the hardware and what it did. But, you know, until we get a true native um, pattern generator on the Mr., you know, we got to use the tools that we have. Um, and I just try to make that close to reference. I'm like, that's just a good baseline to have, you know, try to hit that 700 millivolts with RGB. That's what it should be. At least at reference levels, if the console is slightly different, hopefully the core will kind of do its thing. Like the real hardware, like the SNES core does and, you know, do whatever it does in real hardware. But if, you know, that true native output of the Mr. or any device is hitting reference levels, you know, you can't. You can't expect better than that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's kind of an interesting discussion that there's definitely not going to be a real answer to, but what happens in, with uh, with devs that were using consoles that were on the really low side when they were designing the artwork for their games and stuff like that, you know, obviously they're designing the artwork on a VGA <laughs> monitor with, you know, a pixel art type of thing. And But once they put it on the console, did they compensate for that? So, you know, you could drive yourself crazy with this stuff. You know, were, were all the Dreamcast devs calibrating around an 800 plus millivolt output on the VGA cable? Were they just uh, doing the artwork the way it's supposed to have been done and then just not even caring after it i mean you could obsess for ages over this but my my strong personal opinion is i'm not going to freak out if my original console is off especially yeah. if they're all like that but if i'm working on a new product and mr would definitely count as a new product i would want that to always fall under the correct standards and you know, yeah. if you run into a case where one dev made the game too dark to compensate for the the Dreamcast higher voltage, that's that is what it is, right? So, that's yeah. I, I wouldn't obsess about that, but I definitely think that any products moving forward, you want to hit correct tolerances. But I just 
kind of accept and embrace all this old stuff for what it is. Yeah. And I, I would think like if a console is, you know, let's just say there's some console out there that was 600 millivolts natively. I don't know of one, but say there is, and it's got a core on the mister and your mister, you know, is configured for reference level 700 millivolts. You know, is it up to the core itself to kind of tweak that somehow? Uh, like how does that happen exactly? That's way above my skill levels, but you know, is yeah. that something that could be done in, in kind of software, but also through pass through to the hardware. That's one of those things, and I hope in the comments people will correct me if uh, you think I'm wrong about this, but it, it, at least with the data I have today, my my opinion on that would be to keep things like the S-curve and the SNES, because that's how that yeah, would work, that was. but make sure that the output's 700-ish millivolts, you know, give or take, there's always that tolerance there, but, you know, if... If your uh, one revision SNES was 600 millivolts and there's a, a Mr. Core, no, keep the S curve, but make it the seven, whatever the ish that you're going to want it to be. That way the output levels are all going to match. You still have that same curve and then just kind of go from there. And if it's, if we find out it's a mistake somehow, sure, we'll figure out a way to fix it. But that's I mean, definitely that's, how I would approach it. I agree. That's just the, you know, the nature of the Mr. and any, you know, FPGA, you're going to have a lot of different cores on there, a lot of different systems. You know, you can't tune it just to that one system. Like if you're trying to make, you know, like the Super NT or something, you tune that just like a real Super Nintendo. But with the Mystery, you can't do that. So yeah. to start with a good baseline for the Mister itself or whatever FPGA, that's what needs to be done. And then I think you know, the cores are kind of going to do what the cores are going to do, but you can't accommodate for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that, uh, that you wanted to talk about? Uh, anything else? I'm just trying to think of conversations you and I have personally had you know, over the past couple of months that I wanted to talk about publicly here. But um, I think we covered the basics, you know, why it's important, what to look for, how to test yourself, um, you know, your, your guide and your... Uh, you know, your work definitely would show people which are the best to purchase at the moment, at least. And of yeah. course, I'll I'll keep everybody updated on whatever solid solutions might be out there that are coming out, hopefully. So, yeah. uh, but what are we forgetting? Anything else? Um, I don't think so. We covered pretty much everything I would want to cover about the decks themselves. Um, you know, just keeping in mind, it's an ever-changing ecosystem. You know, nothing's set in stone. Nothing's going to be the same, you know, tomorrow as was yesterday when it comes to these decks. It's a, kind of a fluid system, and that's why I keep trying to add more new ones to the list, uh, seeing if there's hardware changes, those types of things. But again, you know, I'm just happy to see a lot of these board manufacturers, the analog I.O. board manufacturers, the digital I.O. boards, they're finally starting to take this seriously. So maybe we won't even need DAX anymore. Maybe it'll just work out of the box. Like we all, you know, expected it to. Um, so that, that's We're my, always going uh, to need these tools. We're always going to be tinkering. There's always going to be something, even if yeah, yeah. two comes out and it's got the absolute perfect digital to analog conversion built in. You're still going to have cases where you want to use a PC or you want to use yeah. a modern console on a CRT. We're always going to need stuff like this, which is why I really hope uh, some of the community built ones start to come out. Yeah. And uh, I hope, I hope there's multiple choices. Um, you know, the, the cheapest possible single use, like HDMI to SCART or something and a box with every option. I, I hope there's everything in between 
uh, for people because I just I think this is not a, this is a problem that's not going to go away even if it's completely solved on Mister and whatever FPGA devices are out it's, it's just going to always be a, an issue. So yeah, especially for PCs. You know, you bring up PC decks like that's a whole nother whole nother ball game because they're a lot. Hot, you need a lot more um, support for higher frequencies like. 350 megahertz you know especially for monitors like that one back there you need that is the question i forgot to ask you that (laughs) is the question right there have you uh when you test these DACs, you test for 15 kilohertz compatibility right yes i I'm, i'm only testing for 15 kilohertz with these tests okay because that's another issue that's plagued everybody uh, you know, when I've always talked about the cheap DAC link that I have, that I put the stuff in my Amazon store and recommend it, I've always warned people when I first started, it was if you buy 10 of these, nine might work with 240p and one wouldn't. And nowadays, one might work with 240p and nine won't. So um, that's another issue that definitely needs to be solved. And not only that, how does it handle the switch between different resolutions? Yeah. Some crash, you need to power cycle them. Some will work with 480i, but not 240p. Some won't work with either of those 15 kilohertz signals at all. They're 480p and up. Um, some won't work past 720 if they do work with, I mean, there's so many different factors in there. So your research is concentrating on 15 kilohertz compatible ones, right? It, it is. Um, this, I'm glad you're bringing this up there. You know, I've definitely seen and heard issues with some of the DACs where, like you said, trying to go from 240p to 480, basically the DAC has to resync and some of them are better than others. Some of them might do it instantaneously. Some of them, you know, might see some flashing for a second or two. Some of them might just keep flashing and won't ever sync again. Um, I've definitely heard of that. Um, I know some of the icy box ones have had that issue. I haven't had the issue with it, but I've heard other people have. So, you know, make sure you test them. You know, if it doesn't work, you can try a different one. But um, I can't test for all scenarios, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah, and I wouldn't recommend you do either because if you spend eight hours testing, how do you know it's going to be the same DAC a week from now from the same exact link exactly. from the same store? So, exactly. yeah, so th- that's another issue. and That's one that's plagued me for a while as well. And that's that's one that I would love to get. Because that's why I keep saying, if there's a community one out there that's 50 bucks, I would always recommend it over an $8 one. Even if we found one that's consistently good f- for now, how do we know it's going to continue to be? Whereas if the, we find one made from our community for us that checks all of these boxes that could go 240p to 1080p or maybe even just 720, whatever, that would be that would be ideal. So yeah. that's definitely I mean, that's, one that I've run into. That's also why I I recommend HD Furies myself is because I know they were kind of built and tested for gaming. That's kind of where mm-hmm. they started. I know they do a lot with you know movies and video too, but a lot of them are built for gaming. So I feel like they, the reason they cost more is they put a lot of hard work into making sure that hardware was consistent. It was designed for this use case. Whereas a lot of the decks we're using, they're like decks for hooking up a laptop to a projector in a business room. Right. Exactly. So, you know, HD Furies might cost a good bit, but until, like you said, a better solution comes out, like made by, the community for the community that's going to be consistent that's going to be tested well um it is always going to be a risk buying these these cheap decks yeah you know the i'd like to test a scenario well you could probably just test it if you want to throw this up on social media or something but um the, the stream i did the last Mega Man stream i had the retro castle mister 
with just the HDMI out, I was not using its DAC so I could run this test specifically. And I had the HDMI going into a VHD splitter with audio extraction. For whatever reason, I have never found direct video working with 4K splitters, but 1080p, they would work. That's not a set in stone rule. It's just the ones that 20 or so that I've tested. And then one of the HDMI outs went to the Tink 4K and it used its Mr. Direct Video mode. The other went into the Benfi DAC that you suggested into a CRT so I could just uh, game that way. And then I had the VHD's uh, audio output just to get audio for, for the moment. And that the interesting thing about that is resolution changes tripped up the splitter. So when I was going from the Mr. Menu to the core and then loaded the game, I had to unplug and plug in the splitter a couple times. And then it, it freaked out the uh, my, my OBS. I had to close and reopen OBS after that stream was over to fix the audio for uh, on the local side of things. Yeah. So there's so many factors. Um, with the HD Fury 4, have you tried that? Have you tried HDMI in from the Mr., HDMI out to the Tink 4K, and then VGA out to your monitor? and uh, see that if you could do it that way? With the HD Fury, I've done it where I send it from the Mr. Out Direct Video, and it will send to my CRT, and then to the Tink, and then to my OLED. And that works. Like I, The picture's not You don't working. get crazy dropouts or anything like that? I didn't get crazy dropouts with that. You know, It might flash for a second or two, changing resolutions. Oh, screen, yeah. Normal, but um, yeah, I've done that a lot with the HD Fury. And then recently I just kind of changed up my whole system. And when I got a HDMI Extron SMX board, so it's mm. HDMI four by four. So it has four inputs, four outputs. Um, and that's been working great. And I think it really oh, wow. comes down to the quality of these HDMI components. I've tested other splitter HDMI splitters, the 4k ones. I say they do 8k, but they're all crap. Like, unless yeah. you spend some money on a good one, I think, like, these direct video signals are just confusing them, and they just spit out nothing. So yeah. I got rid of my old cheap Amazon, you know, 4K splitters and whatnot, and I, I got this extra on board, and it's been great. So, yeah. Have you ever seen the HD Fury 4 uh, in a, one of the cheap deals that um, HD Fury has on their website? I've only seen the older stuff. The the deals that they have, like a multi-pack, you can buy five of them, I think, for like 200 bucks a piece kind of thing. No, there's a deal where you have to enter a password in order to get into the website, and you're welcome to figure out what that password is if you're listening. But uh, you can just go in, and they have, I think, extra stock of stuff that they sell off very cheap, and it's usually their older stuff. But I've never seen the – I only found out about it a while back, but I've never seen the HD Fury 4 in there. So it's still a full-priced product. You can't really get any discounts on it or anything, I guess. Yeah, I, I've used that before, uh, like a year or so ago when I wanted to test a bunch of them. Um, that I think they don't have the HD Fury 3s anymore. I don't think you can get those anymore. And the 4s, I don't know where, what, where they're at stock-wise. I haven't looked probably in like a year, but – you know, if you've got some friends and want to get an HD Fury for cheap, definitely look into buying through there. Usually you can get a good deal on like five of them, but even the single ones were cheaper through that welcome portal. And the HD Fury 3 looks like it also has a, uh, does it have in a, a switch or does it have a, a HDMI pass through? I couldn't tell when I was looking at it. Um, I don't think it has 
pass through. I think it's got a B switch. Two inputs. Two inputs, I believe. Yeah, so it really is the HD Fury 4 that has the pass-through in it. So it's essentially an HDMI switch and a DAC all in the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. great device. <laughs> and that's $250-ish for that one. So that's Yeah, um, but I think, I, uh, like I said, if you buy a five-pack, you can get them for like a 200 each. You just got to find four friends. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's definitely something I'd love to check out. I just, um, I really, really like finding solutions that are more affordable for people. And I myself will end up sticking with cheap solutions as long as I can, just so I can continue to test that. Uh, yeah. The, I, I'm so upset that the Venteon DAC that I tested a few months ago was a pass-through DAC that worked really well, got good scores. And they must have only had like a dozen left in stock because as soon as the word got out, they just sold out and they haven't come back. Yeah. And I talked to the manufacturer and they're like, we're not making it anymore. And I was like, it was like a twenty dollar HD Fury Four. <laughs> really? Yeah. So oh, that sucks. That was too bad. I've been waiting to find another one like that. I keep looking around, um, but I've tested a few of the other Venteon decks. They're just not not like this one. So definitely mm-hmm. don't go out and just buy some Venteon thinking it's going to be a good one. <laughs> well, I mean, based on this entire conversation, I wouldn't have anybody go out buying any of these cheaper ones expecting anything. <laughs> Just buy it expecting that you are going to want to test it and possibly return it if it's a terrible one. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't even need an oscilloscope really to test these. If you've got a, a coloring meter that's, you know, you're calibrated your TV with, you can kind of see, okay, at 100 IRE, is it hitting 100 nits, right? At 20 IRE, is it hitting whatever you calibrated for, three nits, let's say. You know, and you could use that to kind of judge how good a DAC is as well if you don't have an oscilloscope. So sometimes I'll I'll use both to kind of like verify things just to make sure mm. everything's right because I've calibrated all my monitors with the color meters and HDFR and all that stuff. So I trust what they're displaying. Um, but that's just another way you could kind of, you know, test it without a scope. Yeah, and testing two ways is definitely anybody who's working on these products should do it. Just consumers test the way you test it. But I made a couple of mistakes recently, and I even did one in a live stream where um, the th- second channel on my oscilloscope is off. So if I put an all white screen and I test the red, green, blue colors, green will be off. But if I unplug the BNC connector from the green input and plug it, you know, input two and mm-hmm. plug it into input one, it's exactly the same. That was one of the mistakes I made with Ivory. As I said, his green was off. It wasn't. Yeah. I just did a live stream, just slapping on those two da- different DACs, testing them, and they were both off. And that it was the scope. So I got to do a, a video with Voltar soon about how to calibrate your scope for this yeah. Exact and reason. check so. your BNC, you know, connectors and terminators too, because I've had bad, you know, BNC connectors where if they're not seventy-five ohms, they could throw off your, you know, readings as well. So make sure you test those too. Yeah, that was something I always talked about when doing scope work. And uh, if you're just using BNC terminators for your, you know, your BVM, let's just say, I always recommend people get just the sack of cheap ones. So if you need eight, get a, a 10 pack, test all of them with a multimeter, just a cheap $8 multimeter, just mm-hmm. make sure it says 75 ohm. And then uh, if you have any issues, throw one out. And if, if not, great, cool. Yeah. And I hate to tell people to throw stuff out, but you could for the price of like three good ones you can get a sack of 10 or 20 
But if you're using a scope, that's when I would spend the three or four dollars yeah. each on those because it's yeah. it's everything. It's not just the consistency that it's spot on seventy five ohms. It's the um, the quality of the construction. It's not going to wiggle, and if it wiggles a little bit, you might get an off reading. And yeah. so yeah, that that's the time to spend the money on some quality BNC connectors and seventy five ohm terminators. Taking them on and off a lot, it's definitely worth the extra couple bucks for a good BNC connector. Yeah, it's my I don't know. Do you have an RG bench, the QWERTY Moto box? Mm-hmm. You should get one of those. The my um, I used to run video into the scope and then out to the monitor, but when you terminate with the monitor, that could skew the results as well. So right now, what I have is the RG bench going directly into the scope with just a VGA to BNC connector. It has seventy-five ohm termination on it. And then I so I'll just I'll plug the SCART connector or component or S video or whatever else into the RGB monitor I have right above it, get mm-hmm. to the test pattern that I need, and then unplug the cable and plug it directly into the RG bench. So you yeah. have no components skewing the results whatsoever. And you could I mean you'll know immediately if the RG bench or the cable is messed up because it'll you know it'll throw the results off pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, from from my setup I do uh Obviously, I've got a analog board, so I'd have a VGA connected to the VGA port, and then the HDMI obviously connected there. Um, so the HDMI goes to the DAC, and then to the scope, and then the VGA goes through my SMX to whatever, like that little bench monitor I got over there, to just see what's on the screen. Cool. Well, Carl, thank you very much for all of the work that you've just done and, and just given to the community. I, I just I can't thank you enough. And anybody who does stuff like this is just so important because this is how all of us learn and get better. This is how consumers learn how to buy better products. This is how people who make products go out and learn how to do better with their products. Everybody benefits from from stuff like this. So thank you so much. Yeah, most welcome. And thank you for all you do. And thanks to all the other people out there in the community who've helped you know in any way possible like this is you know such a fun hobby to be in and i love the people in it so glad to contribute a little bit well said i'm going to leave uh, links to your social media so where people could follow you and i guarantee we're going to hear from you again on one of these podcasts uh we'll do another one in the future where we could test some other equipment and maybe do, we'll do a live stream together and just test stuff and have some fun with it test some new io boards when they come out hell yeah yeah awesome well thank you very much all right thank you